Hello, TTB community. I am Elliot Shibley, and here with me, as always, is the conscientious Robert Demena. This week, we bring you insight, or every week, actually, we bring you insight from travelers, travel authors, adventurers, conservationists, digital nomads, tour guides, and our own personal travel experiences. I, I believe that we've used conscientious before. I think you've used it on me before. Got to look um, back at the list. Yeah, we'll go back to that and confirm. This week, we're talking to Michael Hilliard, and he has been involved in journalism since 2010, but there's a unique aspect to his journalism. He really gravitates towards war tourism. He has spent time in countries ranging from Iran and Russia, Ukraine, uh, China, Belarus, and really has a unique way of articulating this information. We love talking to him. This is the third time he's been on our podcast uh, he runs his own podcast, the wildly popular Red Line podcast, where he speaks with really high-ranking individuals at the White House, um, various government employees, NATO employees, and they break down different uh, aspects of geopolitics. Definitely check that out if this topic is something that interests you, because I really think that he's a he's a great resource for that information. Travel tip of the week ties into the episode. Check the State Department's website for potential conflicts or safety concerns prior to traveling to your destination. The State Department does a good job of breaking down issues related to, uh, you know, isolated conflicts, civil unrest, um, issues associated with uh, gender identity and um, race. So you can get good insight there and you could do with that information what you want, but it is a good spot to check out. Before we get into the conversation, check out some of the cool things we offer. The Traveler's Blueprint offers a travel journal and planner that is available for $7.99 on our website. It is a PDF, so you can fill it out online or in paper, and it is completely reusable. We also offer a Become Your Own Travel Agent five-part video tutorial. Part one is navigation, two is booking airfare, three blogs, research, and reviews, four itinerary building, and five safety, cultural norms, and thoughtful travel. You can find that on our website, and it is $25. We also offer travel consulting. So for more information on that, go to our website and feel free to send us a DM on social media or an email. Lastly, you can join us, and if you want to, you can you can be a part of our Travel Around Table series. That's where we sit down with a group of, of travelers. Send us your email with your name, your website, and a few travel-related topics that you enjoy discussing, and we will get back to you. Welcome to the Traveler's Blueprint. Start designing your next adventure. Michael, welcome back to the Traveler's Blueprint podcast. It's fantastic to be here. Thanks so much for having me again. We are extremely excited to talk to you, catch up on how things have been, talk about 2022. And before we get into our uh, discussion on geopolitics, can you give us a little bit of background on who you are? I know some of our past listeners know who you are, but give a recap and talk a, bit, a little bit about what you do with the Redline podcast. So my name is Michael. I'm the host of the Redline podcast, which is a geopolitical program. We have guys from you know, Harvard, Oxford, the White House, Cambridge, you know, presidents of countries come on to talk about one big geopolitical issue each uh, each fortnight, whether it be, you know, the trenches in Nagorno-Karabakh or uh, Japan's geopolitical significance in East Asia. That's what the show does. Uh, my personal background, I used to be a conflict journalist. So I spent time in, uh, you know, Iran, Iraq, uh, Ukraine, Russia, you know, if there was cheap vodka and bullets on the ground, then I probably unfortunately spent some time there. So yeah, you yeah. hung out in a bar with the Taliban. Uh, I, that was a long uh, time ago. <laughs> skied, skied with mines next to you in Georgia, right? It's, yeah, it's been a fun, it's been, it's been a fun few years. <laughs> yeah, we talked and we talked about that on the first time we had you on. Um, I don't, Elliot, are you looking up the number of that episode? I am trying and failing. Which is funny because my mother listened to that episode. Um, oh, she did, yeah. She never usually checks out any, anything my stuff, but apparently it came up in her recommended. So she checked it out and didn't realize half of that stuff. So I, <laughs> I, I, uh, copped, oh. it, I copped it very hard for my mother after that. Oh, um, that's funny. Going, <laughs> what are you doing in Uzbekistan? <laughs> right. She thought you were going on uh, the holiday, but. She thought I was going yeah. for historical sites. Right, right. <laughs> Uh, yeah, that was that was a fun conversation, and that was actually the first time we talked. And and here we are, years later, still years hanging later. out, still connected. So yeah, really looking forward 
to this conversation, we are going to get into geopolitics a bit, right? And yeah. and so maybe that, that was episode one hundred and one. One hundred and one. Wow. One hundred and one. Yeah. One hundred and one. Okay. Yeah. Cool. Eighty episodes later, nearly. Yeah. That's wow. impressive. <laughs> yeah. And you were on for a, a great conversation. When I thought it ended up being an incredible conversation, it was called "The Relevance of History to Travel." And we talked about understanding the history of a nation or landmark before you go and visit, and then why it's important to record significant mm. historical events as they're unfolding. And that's really mm. where you you gave a lot of insight. So that was and awesome. That was episode one fifty three? One fifty three. Check those out. <laughs> awesome episodes. <laughs> yeah. And this again will be another awesome episode because we're going to be talking about you know, current geopolitical issues and how it relates to tours and what to keep an eye out for the rest of 2022. Mm. So Michael, maybe let's start with 2021 and mm. the major geopolitical events that took place. And then we'll discuss how they bleed into 2022 and then ultimately wrap this all up with how it's going to impact tourism. So obviously the, the big issue of 2021 is, is the, and I'm going to use the term to not get this demonetized, but the flu, <laughs> the big flu, we've mm, all, yes. the, the big sick that we've all yeah. kind of not mentioning <laughs> for, uh, to, not, to not get our, ourselves demonetized. But yes, that has been the big one. And obviously that has limited travel from quite a lot of nations. So particularly guys who are reliant on tourism. So your Sri Lankas, your Caribbean nations, uh, particularly some of the sort of central Europeans like Croatia and Hungary who are, very reliant on tourism dollars coming in from countries like Australia uh, have been really, really hurting over this period. Uh, so when you look at someone like Barbados, when the moment the border is closed to the U S like they watched 75% of their GDP just stop overnight. Wow. You know, and during the sort of tide of the pandemic, when everyone was locked in the biggest export from Barbados was Mount Gay rum. If that gives you any idea on how little was left in the economy. Uh, and that's this is a pretty common thing across a lot of these countries at the moment. So yeah, uh, one country that uh, Michael, you may be more familiar with, or uh, is Bali, right? I know mm. you're pretty close to Bali. It's a pretty popular destination for Australians, and they were super reliant on on tourism. Very incredibly reliant. So Bali for the for the Americans listening would be kind of how uh, LA views Tijuana. It's just like, it's a, there are three daily flights from where I am up to Bali. You know, you go to a bar in Bali and, you know, every single person will be Australian. Uh, and mm-hmm. to the Balinese, I wholeheartedly apologize for that. Um, <laughs> but I always view it as the Cancun, like the party yeah, destination yeah, very, for that's Americans. Prob- that's, right, probably right. A, that's probably a better, uh, mm-hmm. better analogy than, than Tijuana. But it's right over the border. It's everyone goes there. It's, you know, it is they are very reliant and it's a huge part. It's a majority of the Balinese economy, but it's a very big part of the Indonesian economy is tourism. Mm -hmm. Uh, And it's just disappeared overnight. And a lot of these guys also haven't had, have had a lot of their other infrastructure to bursting. So for instance, stuff like if we say on Indonesia, hospitals have just been decimated over this period. Um, Because obviously what you've had is you've had everyone get sick and with the thing. And then obviously that runs through the hospital staff and you now effectively a breaking point. Um, so this is a lot of these nations who are very reliant on tourism uh, are just dead in the water at the moment. So that's been 2021 has been sl- some opening up uh, and everyone's trying to work out how to sort of go forward with that. Uh, whether there has to be vaccine passports, how you, everyone needs to approach that, how you vac- vaccinate, you know, can countries get to a very high vaccination rate? Can they not, you know, where do they get their vaccinations from? It, that's been the big story of 2021. Yeah. Uh, obviously, there's been lots of conflicts as well, um, particularly in Africa, uh, Central Asia, um, and obviously Europe is a bit of a Eastern Europe is a bit hot at the moment. But it's that's been the big story around the world. Uh, there is a fantastic graphic infographic, and I, I'm sure you're familiar with the Visual Capitalist. Um, mm. They have I don't know if Bob, are you familiar with them? No. So what they do is they <clears throat> do these infographics related to uh, capitalism and just mm. kind of world news and they had they have this infographic that came out in may of 2020 and it is called the visualizing the country's most reliant on tourism and it is mm-hmm. it's super interesting what they do is they have a, a, basically a bar graph share mm-hmm. of total employment or a, i guess a scatter chart share of total mm-hmm. employment in percentage versus thousands of jobs mm-hmm. and so it it's based on total population and the percentage so like you know, Antigua and Bar- Barbuda have nearly mm-hmm. 90% of 
of its GDP as tourism. So they lost most of that. And a lot of the Caribbean islands are in that same boat. And then you have mm -hmm. the Philippines, which has over 10,000 jobs related to tourism, but that's only maybe 5%, 10% of their total population. What that probably doesn't account for is how, you know, connect us. So like a lot of businesses are connected with tourism. For, so for instance, a lunch bar that supplies the tourists at the tourist yeah. workers, is that counted as part of tourism? Because those tourism workers, there's no lunch bar. Um, and this is, you know, uh, you know, if you're, let's say you're selling alcohol, you're selling alcohol on, on a, a Caribbean Island, you know, technically you're not part of the tourism industry, but yeah. a lot of your sales will come from tourists. Uh, yeah. And that's why I think even these these large numbers of infected, uh, you know, affected by the tourism drop off, and those are, are probably correct. under are, are probably undercounted because yeah. it's the flow on effects that tourism has. Yeah, yeah. So the overall GDP GDP in those countries is even mm. greater than what's visualized. Yeah, it's crazy. And how do you think it's going to impact these nations moving forward? Obviously, they will recover because the destination will remain interesting, right? And people will still want to go there when they can. Do you, yeah, what's the recovery it'll be, like? It'll be interesting because some of it will recover and some of it won't. So for instance, you're going to find a lot of business tourism is going to drop off. And friends of mine who work in that, you know, I used to run in the conference sphere of the world. Uh, and I can tell you a lot of these conferences now going, well, why do we need to pay $10,000 to fly everyone to Las Vegas when Zoom exists? Um, and Zoom's perfectly viable, and that's going to kill a lot of those, you know, your mid-range hotels. Zoom. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> and the connection drops off right now. Um, yeah, right. Yes, <laughs> some of these, obviously, these Caribbean nations will be desperate to lure people back, but there will be a lot of people who will still be nervous to travel. I mean, the borders where I am in Australia are opening up in a month's time, um, and there's, you know, speaking to people in Australia, a lot of people are at the moment that they hit, they go jumping on a flight. So I think I'm flying two days after they open. Okay. Um, so it's not just like the state borders of Australia. You're talking to international borders. Yeah. So, uh, okay. effectively right now, my state is cut off from all the other states, um, to cope for, you know, that reason. Blue. Uh, <laughs> and then on Feb 5th, we open up to the international world. Effectively, okay. that's when there's no more restrictions. That's it. You know, whoever's vaccinated now is vaccinated. Good luck. So and let me ask, is, have there been any new geopolitical issues that have risen because of the flu? Very much so, um, because it's, the it's kept the eyes off the ball for a lot of the international community. So particularly guys like uh, Nagorno-Karabakh between Armenia and Azerbaijan. Uh, yeah, we actually just did an episode on Armenia, yeah. Azerbaijan, and uh, Georgia. Georgia. Georgia, yeah. So effectively, because everyone else is distracted with the flu, you know, there was an entire war there that just completely went under the radar, that it's changed the entire geopolitical makeup of that, of that area of the world. You know, we're seeing Africa right now where because a lot of the NGOs and a lot of the standard peacekeeping operations, well, peacekeepers are the right word, but you're kind of your standard doctors of that borders, those kind of guys, because there a lot of those guys have been pulled back from these countries that have very, very high flu rates. Uh, we're seeing effectively wars break out more easily. And there's a lot of conflict, particularly in Ethiopia and starting to be in Algeria, in South Sudan, in Cameroon, in Kenya, in Somalia, um, which are all just feeding off each other as well. So it's, it's made it worse because there's less infrastructure there and there's just... You know, if you are, let's say, Somalia, uh, who has very terrible, you know, very poor infrastructure for the health, you now have to divert like 80% of your health budget to dealing with that flu when you've still got every other issue that comes through the door normally. Right. So yeah. it's, it's just compounding problems in this area of the world. Wow. Let's, can we talk a little bit more about the Armenia-Azerbaijan thing? Because we, we discussed it a little bit in our episode a few weeks ago, but mm. um, I'm curious as to what exactly precipitated that encounter and mm. what exactly are they fighting over is it just that piece of land it's pretty complicated but i'll, I'll give you the real cliff notes and i'm sure. sure there'll be some an armenian in the comment section who will say it's more complicated than this yes um armenian Azerba armenia and azerbaijan is the most venomous of every conflict i've ever seen you know i can go in bars and hang out with russians and ukrainians i can sit there in bars with somalians and kenyans and somalians and ethiopians I can even sit in bars with Palestinians and Israelis. I can never get a Armenian and an Azeri in the same room. It is that venomous. And it is, you know, it is real, real nasty between them. So effectively <clears throat> what happened is 
Stalin being Stalin drew the borders quite terribly. And effectively, if you imagine there's Armenia and Azerbaijan, and there was an island of Armenians inside Azerbaijan, so surrounded by Azerbaijan. When the Soviet Union fell, in, uh, effectively, the Azeris were so all over the shop trying to figure out what to do. Because again, imagine just giving up capitalism overnight. It would just be the whole world fell in overnight. So the Armenians were a little more prepared for it and effectively took all their men and captured effectively pushed over the border and took not only the sort of island, which is called Nagorno-Karabakh, of Armenians living in Azerbaijan, but also the kind of territory around it and connected it and made this square that was called the Republic of Artsakh. Uh, and that's okay. where we kind of sat from 91 forward. Uh, and to give you an idea on how important that is to the Armenians, so it's like 13 of the last 16 prime ministers of Armenia have been born in Artsakh. Uh, it is just the biggest issue in Armenian politics. Like that is there, everything in Armenia is about this, this enclave. So effectively over the last 10 years, we've seen Azerbaijan's GDP going right up and Armenia is pretty steady because Azerbaijan hit this huge deposit of gas mm -hmm. uh, in the Caspian. So they're starting to update their military. They're starting to update their drones. They're trying to really buy in mercenaries and do what they need to do and, you know, really build up their forces. So there's been, there've been a few skirmishes over the years and, Maybe they'd trade a hill and maybe they'd, you know, there'd be a couple of hundred dead on each side, but that would be it until effectively last year, uh, around October, November, where the, um, the, as the Aziris, whilst the US were distracted with the election and everything else, made a huge push and effectively broke the Armenians. Um, it was just, you know, the Armenians are fighting with AK 47s and the Aziris are fighting with, you know, Turkish drones. And the Turks gave them a lot of support. Uh, and effectively, they pushed in and took all of the stuff around the island, the stuff that was originally Azeri territory, and took about half of the island of Armenians. And it was really, really nasty. So even now, we're seeing both sides doing things like desecrating graves. And, you know, it's, it's a real venomous problem. Mm. Now we're at, at a point where the capital, Stepanakert, is effectively where the front line sits. So it got to a point where the effectively the corridor, the only one road that now connected the island of Armenians back to Armenia proper, the Lachin Corridor, is, was held by the Russians. The Russians effectively stepped in as peacekeepers. Uh, there's only that. And now the capital, Stepanaka, is surrounded by Azeri forces. So if you're in living in Stepanaka, you know, rather than where the old way used to be, you know, the front line was, you know, 400 Ks that way, you now wake up every morning with Azeri cannons pointed at the capital. Um, and the Azeris are effectively holding that hostage. Um, so that effectively a ceasefire was called. So the Armenians hold on to about half of the original island and none of the surrounding territory and only have this one road that it's only been guaranteed held open by the Russians. Uh, so if the Russians leave, the Armenians may cut that road and they have nowhere to get to them. Um, and that's where it stands at the moment. So Armenia is effectively in political freefall. Uh, and the only thing that stops it being giant coups is everyone's just as unpopular. Um, the whole country is in this period of mourning for what this conflict was. Uh, and the Azeris are, are still ratcheting. Um, but they're going to use this as effectively a hostage negotiation saying, well, if the Armenians don't give us what we want, we're just going to start war again. And there won't be, you know, it won't be weeks between front lines and the capital getting shelled. It'll be minutes. Um, because again, there are very large artillery pieces now in the hills overlooking Stepanakert. There are wow. still snipers in there that take pot shots. Um, you know, it's, it's become a real toxic environment over there. Uh, and effectively, the Azeris just completely won this because their GDP is just so much larger than mm -hmm. Armenia's. Uh, and Armenia's army is just shot to hell. All of their tanks have just been blown up. Most of their, um, their, a lot of their senior commanders are now perished. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's a really bad place for Armenia to be at the moment. Wow. Do you have predictions on how this plays out for Armenia? <sighs> The best thing, the, the hope will be the Russians are trying to keep the peace for, on both sides because Russia has good relations. Russia has very good relations with Armenia. Uh, even the Russian foreign minister, Sergei Lavrov, is Armenian. Uh, and Russian bases are, are very big in Armenia. So, for instance, most ops into Syria and the Middle East come from Armenia. Uh, but Azerbaijan is a Russia's connection to uh, Iran, which they desperately need those train lines. Uh, B, they're in charge of <clears throat> quite a big chunk of the Caspian. Uh, and C, you know, the Russians know where the money is and the money's in yeah. Azerbaijan. So they're yeah. trying to make sure both sides don't go over the top here um, and trying to make sure there's peaceful peace between them. The real conundrum though now is there's a part of, you know, it really weirdly enough, imagine Azerbaijan, Armenia, and there's a tiny bit of 
Azerbaijan called Nachivan, which is on the other side of Armenia. So right now, if you're living in Azerbaijan, you either have to go all the way through Georgia and Turkey into Nachivan, or you go through Iran into Nachivan because you can't cross through, you can't cross from Armenia to Azerbaijan. Right. So the Azeris are demanding a corridor that goes through, you know, the, the thinnest bit of Armenia and connects Armenia to, um, sorry, Azerbaijan to Nachivan. Uh, but now there's kind of questions of, well, who monitors that corridor? You know, if it's a military corridor, well, does that mean that Azerbaijan can now drive tanks through Armenian soil, which the Armenians are not particularly chuffed about? Uh, and this is Armenia proper. This isn't even Karabakh now. Uh, do you make the Russians guarantee it? To which, what if the Russians just get bored and leave? Or what if the Russians have other fought, fights to fight? You know, who guarantees that? Um, it's a really complicated issue. And I think no one no one is is willing to back down because it is such a big issue in both these countries yeah uh, this is this is where we're at so it it's not going to take a lot for it to pop off again so let's talk uh, about um if you are so we just had a guy on that went to these three countries georgia armenia yep. and azerbaijan uh so as a as an international traveler whether you're from the us europe australia is there what do you have to keep in mind and is it safe to go there? So Georgia, like I've spent quite a lot of time in Georgia. I'm actually supposed to get married in Georgia this year. Um, no, awesome. it's, it's a very, very lovely country. You're safe as houses. Um, just maybe stay away from South Ossetia. That's a whole other issue. Um, it's a breakaway republic that effectively declares their allegiance to Russia. Uh, and funnily enough, the only thing you really want to see is the border with South Ossetia and Georgia is effectively just a barbed wire fence. Uh, and quite often it goes into farmers' territory and they, the Russian troops will wait till the farmers fall asleep drunk uh, and then just pick the border up and move it 10 feet in. <laughs> and they've just been slowly doing that for a while. Every time the farmers get drunk, they just lose 10 meters of their property. Um, oh, that's it, right. <laughs> again, it's very weird. So Georgia, safe as houses, no problem at all. You'll have a great time. In fact, the okay. biggest threat of dying in Georgia is that they'll ever feed you to death. Um, Armenia, Yerevan is Yerevan itself is pretty fine. It's a bit it's a bit down at the moment because their economy has just collapsed because um, they threw everything they had at the war and it didn't work. Uh, Azerbaijan, quite right now, if you stay in the, the capital city, which is on the very other side of the country in Baku, happy's Larry. Uh, obviously, at night Baku can get a bit sketchy, um, but generally it's it's pretty fine. There's, okay. You know, it's your standard kind of Caucasus city. Take your usual precautions, but you know, lovely people, lovely food. You have a good time, and just for the love of God, don't mention the war. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that, that's generally the gist that um, we were talked about is that mm. you can't travel directly from Armenia to Azerbaijan and vice mm -hmm. versa. If you want to travel to those countries simultaneously, you either have to go through Georgia mm -hmm. or you have to fly um, from another country into yep. one of those. As long as it's not the other yeah so they they don't communicate with each other they don't work with each other they really are you know they're not friends at all yeah uh, george georgia yeah. is the kind of is the old dad of the region that you know keeps everyone is the mutual partner with everything okay so and again the visas are very easy to get into georgia georgia loves people they're really friendly it's great i i highly recommend you try georgian wine it's probably the best wine in the world um that's a bold call uh and kachapuri is, is the reason and kachapuri is the reason i'm fat so it's it's an amazing dish it's like <laughs> bread and cheese and egg yeah. and garlic and and it's it's absolutely it amazing. really good oh it's it's phenomenal stuff um even in, when you go to russia the big thing that everyone eats is georgian food because it's just it's like hearty cheesy garlicky you know it's 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 winter food um yeah. so georgia 100 recommend grow have great time you will it's cheap it's lovely it's people are fantastic uh just don't go to south Ossetia. and when it comes to armenia and azerbaijan azerbaijan is gonna be nicer for a western person to be at the moment because the city's a lot you know cleaner and whatnot uh but just don't mention armenians you know they're gonna yeah aziri's gonna shit talk armenians and just say yep no i agree and you just don't don't get in that fight you know i will wholeheartedly just nod and go, yep, I agree. <laughs> Who wants more wine? Let's get off this subject. <laughs> All right. Good to know. So there, there's another region that I'm curious about. Well, there's mm -hmm. two. Um, we'll try to we'll try to squeeze both in, but Europe being mm -hmm. the the major tourist destination globally, um, mm -hmm. 
for multiple reasons, I know is having at least one crisis, a conflict mm-hmm. with on the border of Belarus and Poland. Mm-hmm. Um, can you speak to that at all? I can. So effectively, Belarus is in a bit of a crisis at the moment where Belarus have been for years playing a really, Lukashenko's a fairly smart man. He's been there since what, 94 now. So, you know, and effectively what he's, you know, he's crazy. He'll do things like he'll, you know, skate down to the hockey field and win goals for his own team because no one wants to score against him because he's the dictator. You know, they still shoot people to death by firing squad out there. It's a bit hectic. Um, but the Belarusians effectively have always been playing Europe off and for economic reasons and Russia for military reasons and playing a balancing game. But in 2020, they had this giant revolution, um, you know, effectively trying to kick Lukashenko out of the country because he's been there since 94 and he's corrupt as hell. What then happened is effectively Belarus, you know, had to go shit. Okay. We're now just completely with the Russians. You know, he put his tail between his legs and went to Putin and said, I am whatever you need me to be. No problem. I, I will, you know, help get, help me get out of this jam and I will give you whatever you want. And Putin did. So effectively now Belarus is no longer able to play that game of, you know, Europe economy, but Russian leaning, you know, if you go to particular Lithuania, on a Sunday afternoon, most of the, you know, in the shopping malls of Lithuania, most of the license plates will be Belarusian license plates uh, because people just drive into Lithuania, they go shopping, they come back. They drive into Poland, they do some shopping, they come back. Um, mm. Most people who you are, particularly the young people, either have jobs in like British IT or they work in Poland or, you know, it's not unusual for Belarusians to go into the EU quite often. But now Lukashenko is worried about that and doesn't want them fraternizing with the EU as much. So he's ratcheting tensions between the EU and himself because that's what Putin wants. He's effectively showing to Putin that he's completely loyal. Don't, don't overthrow me, support me, and I will make sure the Belarus stays in the Russian sphere. Hmm. Um, so that's what effectively this crisis was on the border where Belarus effectively took in a bunch of refugees um, from, you know, <laughs> From the Middle East and then threw them over the border into Poland and Lithuania, uh, hoping to effectively annoy the EU um, because he knows that's an issue that the EU will always harp, you know, will very much take poorly um, because particularly your members like Italy, Hungary uh, and Romania and Bulgaria will are always arc up about that, uh, Poland as well. So mm-hmm. this is what Be- Belarus is effectively has lost its ability to try and play both sides and is now just trying to make favor with Putin because Putin is in a position where Putin, all Putin cares about is that Belarus stays as a Russian sphere. That's all that Putin cares about. He doesn't matter who, it doesn't matter who's on the throne as long as they like Russia. Yeah, uh, yeah. And right now the Belarusian opposition is not pro West. It's actually pro Russia as well. It's just not Lukashenko. So, you know, He's trying to tell Putin because Putin goes, well, I can let the revolution happen. The people can pat themselves on the back and say, yeah, we did it. We got rid of Lukashenko and nothing will change for Moscow. They'll still have a very subservient Belarus. So Lukashenko right now has to prove and go, hey, I'm worth the political flack of keeping me around. I'm worth having dissidents. I'm worth this, but because I can give you this. Uh, so it's effectively, it's just, you know, trying to cuddle up to the school bully. <laughs> staying in line with Russia, and I guess you could technically say this about the United States, but it seems like uh, Russia is involved or has their fingers in several conflicts. Mm-hmm. Um, Ukraine is the one making major headlines now. I understand that there's like something like 700,000 Russian troops on the Ukrainian mm-hmm. border potentially about to invade Ukraine and take that country. Is that... Is that like, what do you know about this? <laughs> so this, this is the question I probably get asked most interviews. And I feel like I do this about every six months when Russia does, does this. Mm-hmm. So no, it's not going to be an invasion. So Russia right now is the most important thing to Russia is to keep Ukraine out of NATO. That's the, that's the big one. Now you can't join NATO if you have a territorial dispute. That's like rule one. So it's why Russia has all these breakaways in Georgia and Moldova and Armenia and Azerbaijan to make sure that none of these guys can join NATO. So effectively, you know, years ago, Russia chucked in uh, some armed forces and under the guise of private militaries mm-hmm. uh, who occupy Luhansk and Donetsk. Um, and that's, that's the breakaway Republic there because Luhansk and Donetsk are majority Russian. Um, they, they love Russia. They want to be Russia. They call themselves Novorossiya, which is like new Russia. Um, this is, you know, yeah, the Russians have chucked in what three army army armies at the moment uh, there, and the rest of them will sit on, on across the Ukrainian border. 
Now to Russia, there's things we watch for to actually see if it's a real invasion or a fake invasion. So if it's a real invasion, you'll see things like them canceling leave passes for mid-level officers, uh, which hasn't happened. You'd see things like pre uh, uh, requisitioning civilian trains for logistics because the Russian defense sphere doesn't have enough trains to get its stuff around. So in times of war, it will need to actually take on civilian trains and use those, which is why Russia invests quite heavily in their train network. They're not doing that. Uh, you'll see defense companies, particularly Aralsk, who has very close ties with the Kremlin, shares go right up uh, because the Aralsk guys, you know, if they meeting with the Kremlin go, okay, yeah, yeah we're going to go invade Ukraine. We need to order X amount of ammunition extra then of course they're going to buy more shares knowing their share price is going to go up. Hasn't happened. Um, you know, Russia effectively runs these logistical games all the time where, because it's such a big country, they'll do games like the Vostok games where they'll go, okay, let's see how quickly we can get everyone to the other side of the country. Let's see how quickly we can mobilize and be ready. Let's see how, you know, the scenario is someone invaded Belarus, how quickly can we defend them? These you know, operations were usually slated for down near sort of Ufa, down that area. But the Russians have just gone, well, if we shove these operations that we were going to do anyway and put them next to Ukraine, then all of a sudden, you know, he, now he's getting the entire Russian population, all the nationalists beating their chest and going, we love Putin. Putin's showing how strong we are. Uh, B, it also scares investors on, because the other big one here is the two pipelines. So a lot of Russian pipelines that come in from Turkey and Central Asia will go through Ukraine. Uh, and Russia really wants to kick off Nord Stream 2, which goes straight from where Petersburg is down into sort of through the Baltic and into Germany. And if you're an investor going, should I invest in the pipelines to Ukraine or should I invest in the one that goes to the Baltic that is completely Russian-owned uh, or majority Russian-owned, should I say? Um, you want to you tell investors, let's go for the Baltic one. It's more expensive, but this way, you just in case Ukraine does pop off. Again, that's great for Russia who actually wants more investment into the Nord Stream 2 project. Uh, you know, this is, and also the fact that he now puts, you know, Russia's GDP is the same size as Australia's, um, which and no one gives it, no one gives a toss what Australia's, yeah, it's not big. Russia's GDP is not big at all. Um, and no one really cares what Australia thinks in, in geopolitics. You know, I, I love my country, but we're not that important. So by, the, by him doing this and effectively taking what was a training exercise anyway, and just running it near the Ukrainian border instead, he now has Biden going out of his way to have a meeting with him uh, and the NATO commanders and treating him as an equal. And this is, everyone is now back on, you know, Russia is the big game, uh, considering effectively the rest of the world's pivoting to Asia at the moment. Everyone's focusing on China and Japan and the, in, in the South China Sea. Russia kind of needs to beat their chest and go, hey, don't forget about us. We're still here. Well, that's um, sort of a perfect segue, actually, because I was going to ask who is the big concern. Um, and... Yeah, let's talk about China. So <laughs> China is obviously, China is obviously yeah. it's, it's, it's interesting because some people in the US State Department will openly call Russia a, a gas station with nukes. Um, it's one of the best descriptions I've ever heard of the country. Um, right. And that's how they view it. They view it as it's not, it's, it's not particularly dangerous. It is, but it's not, you know, the Russians are not going to win a red dawn in the US. They're not even going to mm. push in and take Paris anymore. The, the days of that are gone. Now, they still have a lot of nukes and we still have to take them very seriously. And I do think they are still a major power, uh, but they're not as scary as the Chinese anymore. Uh, and the Chinese are the big scary ones because they're actually uh, pushing their influence into a lot more countries. They're a lot more heavily invested in financial systems. They're actually mm -hmm. modernizing a lot of their military. So, you know, the new gen, the, the sixth gen of Chinese fighters is, is not quite at the US's point, but it's, it's getting comparable. Uh, whereas so, the Russians are always a couple of steps behind everyone, except for they'll get one thing that's really good and up to American standard, but there's like two of them. <laughs> you, the red line posted, you posted an incredible video on the Chinese and how they essentially controlled rare earth minerals. I shared mm -hmm. it with so many people. I, I found it fascinating um, because the Chinese, they scare the hell out of me because of the rare earth factor. Uh, because of their ability to sway entertainment now in the United mm -hmm. States is fascinating to me. You know, mm -hmm. you have Disney movies coming out where they're cutting certain aspects of the mm -hmm. film to cater them to the Chinese and, and what the Chinese government will allow in their mm -hmm. country. And so this, this new dynamic of the United States essentially bowing to Chinese demands on entertainment is mind boggling while simultaneously we realize from a, like a, a resource perspective that they mm. sort of have this stranglehold on us as well. Can you go into the rare earth mineral thing? 
yeah, or so add it's, anything it's, you it's, want. It's actually less about US foreign policy. It's more about just pure capitalism. So do we hit movies first? Because I think it's really interesting to bring this into rare earth. But for movies, China only allows in about 15 external movies a year. And if you're not on that list or you are on that list will probably mean the difference of like $200 million to your bottom line. Mm-hmm. So, you know, if they go, you know, if you're a director who's filming something and they go, for $200 million, you know, the producer will go, we can just insert a scene where the Chi- oh, the Chinese space agency was the one that helped us get this done. Oh, crazy. How cool is that? By doing that, you've just made $200 million extra. Um, so that's not really US foreign policy that's made that decision. It's just plain capitalism, which is exactly mm-hmm. the same as the problem as rare earths. So to kind of really kind of brush through this quickly, but on the bottom of the periodic table, there's all these tiny little elements that no one thinks about, like neodymium and all those kind of really, really odd things. And they're not rare. They're just rare in quantity. So effectively, if you, let's say, go to an iron mine and you expect out of a ton of dirt, you're going to get a kilo of iron. When you go to a neodymium, something for neodymium areas, you'll get a ton of dirt and a gram of neodymium. So it's just, they're not in big clumps. So effectively, it becomes 10 times more expensive to get this out of the ground. So the US had effectively rare earths and the Chinese had rare earths. You know, But what the Chinese did over the sort of the 70s, 80s and 90s is just, yeah, they didn't care about profit. It's, they just went, screw it. Let's just flood the market. And they did. They flooded the market with cheap rare earths. And if you are a US manufacturer going, well, I'd love to buy my neodymium from California, but China's selling it for one eighth the price. I'm just going to buy it from China because the bottom, that's where the bottom line is. So China effectively sent all of the other companies who are doing rare earths bankrupt. Uh, so now there's a, there's a couple uh, who are doing rare earths at the moment, but they're operating on effectively government grants or they're not operating at a bare profit. And uh, now we get to the problem of refinery. So if you, the US and Australia can do light rare earth refining. So there's kind of the first little corner of that periodic, of the bottom external bit of the periodic table. But once you get into the really heavy, heavy rare earths and the medium, heavy, medium rare earths, that's when China is the only person that does any refining because it's, takes a ginormous amount of power to do rare earth, like heavy rare earth refining. Like China will build entire power stations to do one particular element. Uh, and it's terrible for the environment as well. So a lot of this particularly produces thorium, which is radioactive. Mm-hmm. And the US doesn't know what to do with their radiation, radiation waste right now anyway. Uh, they set up a giant uh, facility in, in Nevada to take it on, and then the Nevada state government voted against it. So now, Yuck-a-mel. effectively, these things are sitting in, in warehouses and no one has to do with them. And again, the Chinese are flooding the market with cheaper stuff. You know, the US, even when you're a defense contractor like Lockheed Martin, so for instance, a, an F 35 requires eight pounds of rare earths to function. Lockheed Martin still goes, Yeah, I know, but we don't want to get it from China, but at the same time, well, we need that's the cheapest place to get it and the, we have nowhere else to refine this so they have to go to china to get it uh, and rare earths are in your phones your satellites anything with decent high technology has rare earths in it even in, it'll be in tiny tiny amounts but now china is that bit of the supply chain so and this is where i'm thing. petrified yeah. yeah this is what petrifies me yeah well that and even and- people and, and people go oh well, well just we can do it in the us and yeah but it takes two years to kick off a rare earth refinery um and even then if you want to actually get what the old rare earth refineries were up in Mountain Pass in California going, you're going to have to build an entire power station just to get that rare earth done, which is going to be terribly environmentally damaging as well. So we'll never pass EPA standards. Um, it's going to, and then you have the choice of, well, do we run it as a capital capitalist business? To which the case, if let's say that does get off the ground, China floods the market again, the business goes under and hey, we're exactly where we are right now. Or does the US government effectively have to subsidize it at a very high price? Uh, because China will effectively go, well, if the US is subsidizing, we'll just raise the price. And they will, they'll raise the price and they're knowing the US will pay the same thing. So you now have a choice of either having state rare earth companies and getting rid of all the environmental regulations and effectively getting a, a self-sufficient supply chain or going to a capitalist system, effectively just having companies try to get it. And yeah, no, they're going to go bankrupt when China lowers the price. So it's a really difficult issue to solve at the moment. So this ties into the the chip shortage as well, which isn't just mm-hmm. for, you know, high end. I mean, I guess it is high end electronics because everything mm-hmm. seems to have a high end electronic in it yep. anymore, including cars, phones, computers. Mm-hmm. So um, does this tie in with the rare earth minerals on, I mean, it's the same reason why used cars are extremely mm-hmm. high value right now in the US and new mm-hmm. cars are hard to come by. 
so yeah, there's a there's a, a it's a little bit more complicated, but effectively a lot when you do macroeconomic trends, effectively when guys are building these chips or you know buying out a part of the factory, let's say you have a chip factory in Taiwan, which is where most of these guys are made, uh, and the Honda will say, I'm going to buy 14% of your factory and you will make my chips. Most people will effectively go, okay, uh, I think we're going to make this many cars this year. This is how many chips we we'll need to buy because that's how the supply chain works for almost everyone but Toyota. Uh, is they they buy four doors when they get to the point where they need doors. They don't want a whole warehouse full of doors sitting around because uh, that's extra money, it's extra real estate, hold it, you know, rah, rah, rah. So effectively, when these guys looked at 2020, and go, well, no one's going to drive around. No one's going to do anything. That, you know, who cares? Let's only make this amount of cars. And then when the pandemic, everyone went, screw it, let's rip the bandaid off. Obviously, the demand went up here. And then people also didn't account for things like, when, you know, Australians particularly, when they don't go overseas and spend six grand on a holiday like they do most years, then that's enough money for a used car. So now the, every, everything in the car market goes up. And then you also have the other electronics manufacturers. So if you build, let's say, crane machinery or you build, uh, you know, anything that requires any sort of microchips in it, you go, oh my God, there's a shortage and there's a panic buy. So if you work with, let's say, any, you know, safety equipment manufacturing guys over here, They'll be scouring effectively anyone making chips. And the moment, even if they don't need it, 100 chips drops out, boom, we'll buy it. No problem. We'll pay double. doesn't matter. We just need them. Uh, so it's a shortage that creates a shortage that creates a shortage. Um, now, the trouble with this is because of these, these are all determined a year in advance or two years in advance or effectively buying out contracts for a certain amount of factories that if it takes years for this to come, you know, come around. It's the same reason with petrol right now where, uh, you know, Everyone goes, oh, well, this is Biden's put the price of petrol up. How dare he? You know, it's actually, no, the the oil companies and the manufacturers thought there'd be this much petrol demanded this year, uh, but it's actually this much because we're actually got out of the pandemic a little bit faster than most of the analysts thought we would. Uh, we're driving a lot more than people thought we would. We, do, we aren't taking public transport as much as, we, as uh, we thought we would. So the demand of petrol is way above where we thought it would be. And again, this is not just a, oh, shit, there's more petrol today. Tell, tell the factories to make some more. This is a two years in advance kind of trend um, where it takes a long time to get those gears and everything working and turning again. So, you know, a decision made in March, 2020 is still making, you know, is still effectively being played out today. Uh, so we're slowly starting to see it come back into kilter, but it's, you know, this is what happens with macroeconomics. It's, you know, it's like shoving, you know, when you get these giant container ships and you try and turn them, they don't turn on a dime. You just shove them and they slowly turn over a very long time. Mm -hmm. You know, microeconomics, yeah, you can, it's a little tugboat. You can just do this, but macroeconomics, you effectively, you just have these incredibly slow turns where a decision yeah. made of, we should only make 40% of the oil we usually do because no one's going to buy it and we don't have anywhere to store it. And we don't want to see what happened in April, 2020 when they were giving away oil because no one had any use for it and no one could store it. We don't want to see that again. Let's only make 40% of our demand. Oh, crap. Everyone's actually getting back out of the pandemic. Oop, whoops, whoop, 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 and trying to buy everything they can. Hmm. Yeah, I know Tesla was one of the few companies that actually navigated the chip shortage a little bit. I guess they weathered it better than other car makers hmm. in the US because they had some of the ground up and did some of their own manufacturing and some of their own software development, which I thought was interesting. Hmm. Not that they knew it was coming, but they, they've always been kind of like a ground up rather than source. Yeah. Know. Which is which is why Toyota is also wearing this a lot better than most companies. Because Toyota, so for instance, Toyota tends to run with a lot more uh, stock sitting in the back room than let's say a Honda or a Sasonyang or a Ford does. So it's why that, you know, they've already, they already, even if they thought it was going to reduce by 30% demand, they still ordered you know, 80% demand on what they usually do. So they actually kept their orders a lot higher. And it's why that when they sign the contracts with these chip companies going, we want 50% of your warehouse at for two years, here's the contract signed. They're already in a better position than effectively when, you know, Honda and everyone went, oh, we only want 4% of your factory for two years. And now they're trying to clamber back to get, you know, whatever bits of the factory they can back online again. And again, a lot of this is the trouble that everyone's up for their demand. There's actually much higher demand for consumer goods and cars and everything else at the world, which is also yeah. driving up the problem. But a lot of these chip manufacturers are going, well, why would we want to start a second factory? Because yeah, it'd be great. We can relieve the demand, but we're going to put all this cost and money into effectively making a second factory. And then once everything goes back to normal, 
that factory is going to go bankrupt. Why would we bother? Why would we just not keep it at one factory, charge double the price and wait this thing out for two years? Right. Macroeconomics, everyone. It's an Ooh. incredibly fun subject. Yeah. <laughs> it, it is really interesting. I mean, this, those have a lot of impacts. I mean, car shortages and everything, it, all, it still all ties back to travel in some way because, I mean, car shortages have impacted rental cars. Hugely. Yeah. And not just like in the US, it seems like everywhere. It, it's one of the big things that's killing Alaska tourism at the moment is they're just having no, people can buy a, get an apartment, you know, get a, a Airbnb in Alaska, but then they can't get a rental car. And that, yeah. you know, you might have, yeah, a couple of bars in Anchorage are going to do okay, but all the usual tourist sites of the beautiful stuff out, out you know, two hours outside Anchorage, no one's got a rental car. Mm-hmm. So they're all dying. So it's, it's a, it's very weird how decisions made in boardrooms in you know February March 2020 by Honda and all these companies are affecting you know small rural gas stations in tourist towns in northern Alaska. Yeah, I mean there's a there's a great upside to global, I guess the global market, but there's also a massive downside to it too, especially mm-hmm. when it's when there's a massive global, uh, yep. I guess calamity, travesty, flu, whatever mm-hmm. that. It is the first time I'd say since the 1919 Spanish flu that everyone mm-hmm. on the in these on the planet has been impacted in some mm-hmm. shape or form. Yeah, these so yeah these these global conflicts. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's really hard to count up how many different ways they impact tourism mm-hmm. um, beyond beyond the actual issue with supply of certain things. You have the safety factor where where the, it takes time to recover the feeling of the feeling for tourists to, to feel safe going back to your country. You have to deal with the destruction of property. Uh, perception is big. Yeah, Percep- perception is huge. I mean, look, you still have tourism down in Yugoslavia, Yugoslav countries because people still remember the Yugoslav wars, even though that was what ninety one. Yeah. this was a long time ago. I when I. Sorry, go ahead. Finish. No, I was going to say that's yeah, that's it's it's just that boggles my mind still that people look at Yugoslav like Croatia and you know Slovenia as dangerous countries that are part of Eastern Europe. When but, a lot of houses. that is a lot of that is media, right? Like we hear mm. we hear about the horrible things, but we don't hear about the recovery, mm. right? And that's uh, so yeah, Croatia. When I told people that I was going there a few years ago, everybody isn't safe. Can you go there? And then when we got there and we were talking with locals. They were telling us things like the police, some of them carry guns, some of them don't. The ones that do carry guns, their guns don't even work. They don't even need them. And you feel much safer in most of the those cities compared to some of the cities in Philadelphia, or I mean, in the United States. <laughs> Philadelphia is my home city. Please, people, that, that's why I said it. it. I wasn't singling it out for any other reason. Um, it, it's, you're, you're not wrong. I have, I've, I've met conflict journalists i met one guy who was in uh, who was in kabul at the time and i was chatting with him and having a good time he goes you know oh yeah kabul's not too bad um you know i was like oh okay well where wouldn't you go he's like i wouldn't go to gary indiana like i'd rather i'd rather i'd rather go in the bad bits of afghanistan than gary indiana i was like okay (laughs) for sure and but it is a shame because this this sentiment this idea that these countries are dangerous obviously carries over and it gets passed down colombia i think is one of the best examples of this because they had that you know massive drug issue with Mm. with pablo escobar and it's created all these television shows and movies and people who don't spend time thinking about it or looking into it would still think that Colombia is this cocaine capital where uh, crime is rampant and buildings are blowing up and commercial airlines are blowing up, which it's crazy that Pablo Escobar did that. Um, but, and, and, then, and then that's not the case, right? So they, they've seen a really good recovery there. Tourism is picking up. It's a beautiful country and they've sort of moved past that. Uh, but people don't know that, you know, a majority of the people don't know that. So it's, it stinks for these countries that are, are so desperate to recover, so desperate for tourism, so desperate to be viewed as a safe nation. And they just, it's all marketing, I guess, really is where they should maybe put money. But it's really a shame how these conflicts can impact a country well beyond the con- when the conflict's actually over. 100%. Like Estonia is nicer than my hometown. Like Tallinn is a beautiful, safe, lovely city that is diet Finland. Um, you know, it is... <laughs> It is, it is a beautiful, beautiful place. And everyone is lovely and the pancakes are great. 
Yeah. But because it was former Soviet, every time I've been to Estonia, I hear, you know, family members and friends go, oh, the Russians are going to invade it? And I'm like, no, this is not 1983. We're, you know, we're pretty fine yeah. here. Um, you know, it's, it's, it is a lot of perception. And it's because it's a self-sustaining property a problem, sorry, that people don't go to Estonia because they think it's dangerous. So no one they know has been to Estonia to tell them it's not dangerous. And then it just right. keeps running along in circles. Yeah. Right. Um, right. They should so, listen yeah, to the Traveler's Blueprint podcast. Where they, should listen to, <laughs> they should listen to the Traveler's Blueprint podcast. Um, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So it, that's, it's, yeah, it's uh, it'll be interesting to see once people start ch- checking out these nations, going to interesting places, they're going to come home and go, actually, yeah, Estonia is lovely. Latvia is lovely. You know, George is the best place I've been. You know, I've already agreed with my partner. We're going to retire in Georgia. Yeah. Because um, we love Georgia that much. And then to counter that, countries that have been historically safe now have probably plunged into um, something that you might should, should be concerned about. Like Myanmar is one that mm-hmm. just a few years ago people were going to. Cam- Cambodia, I believe, is safe now, correct? Mm-hmm. Um, but I know Myanmar has suffered that military coup. And So it's, it, Myanmar is safe if you're white. They won't touch you. Um, okay. they, they're smart enough to not touch the white guys um, because they know that, you know, one white person dies in Myanmar that cuts off in millions in tourism. And they, they know that, you know, they'll actually have, you know, if you get mugged, the police will very much try and make sure that doesn't happen. Uh, and again, but it's also standard standard. Like a lot of people look at these countries and think, Oh, it's, it's dangerous, but I mean, you just keep your standard wits about you, you know, like I've gone with friends to, you know, places in, you know, Malaysia and Cambodia and whatnot. And you'll see things like, you know, people like, Oh, you know, Oh, this, well, this girl wants me to come down the back alley with her. I'm like, don't do that. You're about to get mugged, mm-hmm. um, which is pretty standard in you know most countries. But yeah. again, people don't think of, if that happens in the States going New York, you go, oh, it's New York. You know, is what it is. But yeah. happens in Cambodia, they go, oh, it must be a dangerous country. Right, right. Yeah. Well, I know Mexico is having an uptick in, in, in violence in some of the major tourist destinations, Cancun, Tulum. They're, mm. seeing, they're seeing it spill over. And of course, it's going to impact travel there. Yeah. Uh, I know a travel blogger was shot and killed in crossfire. Um, yeah. So it's, it's sad. Um, and it is going to have a pretty significant impact on tourism there for sure. Mm. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's sad. Um, but unfortunately it's when there's a lack of tourism coming in, the economy goes down, people get more desperate. They turn to crime and that drives the tourism down even further. It's a, again, one of these terrible one feeds. It's a feedback loop that just yeah. sucks for these guys. Yeah. 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 Well, let's hope by the end of this year, tourism will pick back up uh the flu will be under control and <laughs> we'll be back to a relatively new normal elliot and i want to come to australia and new zealand love to so have you. yeah we might yeah we'll have to let you know if we ever do plan that and it actually well it we'd, I, I would, I would do love it when to new zealand show. opens up <laughs> yeah yeah well, new, zealand, think- new zealand should be opening up in the next next few weeks as well because they're you know we're 90 percent vaccinated i think new zealand's about the same as well now okay. um so yeah, like business as usual very soon. Uh, in which cool. case, when you get here, I will happily take you to all the pubs and wineries and, and show you uh, how much of an alcoholic country we are. <laughs> all right, we would love that. Yeah, we'll try our best to keep up. <laughs> yeah, right. It actually, it's funny because our, our beers are a lot stronger than yours. Um, so it's it's almost a running joke that the American sailors is a very big port, uh, naval port just off the coast here. So the Americans dock here all the time and they always come into Fremantle, which is kind of the, where the port is. Uh, and they always go, I'm going to, you know, you Barzies don't even know how to drink. We're all oh, honey. We'll give it a two <laughs> hours. Uh, and they're always absolutely slaughtered by about 10 PM. Um, oh, because everything, everything is a bit stronger. So yeah, again, always happy to take Americans on the town. Cause I know it's going to be a cheap night of drinks for me. <laughs> <laughs> that's I'm not um, even going to pretend that it's, that's not true for me. I do, I do really, probably the most important question of this podcast so far is do Australians drink Fosters? We do not. I don't um, think so. It, fosters in this country is, is, uh, is known as having sex in, in a canoe because it's effing close to water. <laughs> 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 um yeah it's i've heard that before yeah it, it, it fosters is like not seen anywhere around here uh it's only the tourists who ever drink it and we'll you're literally the only bars that'll sell it are the guys in the tourist hotspots all right michael so uh before we jump into our next round of the podcast oh did you have anything you wanted to add no no, no. all right I'm, so i'm all good you're good uh well before we get into the next round we do have a rapid fire round um, fire away 
I don't know if we had that originally. We did. I think I think okay. that was one of the first rapid fire yeah, rounds you had you last are. time. And we've, okay. we changed it a little bit. We've notched it down to about five. Go ahead. They're, they're very specific. But before we Far get into away. it, just shout out your podcast, which I know needs no real shout out, but go ahead. Tell us where people can find you, your you website, find- all that good stuff. So you can check our website, redlinepodcast.com. You can find the Redline Podcast on all the major platforms and major podcast places you can find it. Uh, I'm far more depressed the entire time on that show than I am here. Uh, and it's a me, just me talking to very smart people about geopolitics every fortnight. So if you want to get a crash course on why Bosnia might head to war or what the Russian Pacific, Pacific uh, Ocean goals are, then that's the way to go. But uh, yeah. for this, I get to be a bit more relaxed for a few hours. Yeah, super interesting stuff. And I'm, I, we got a, a small like snip of what you actually discussed. And it was all right. It was fascinating just, just in the brief time we had you on. So to be able to get it's the an absolute pleasure to be awesome. as always. Yeah. All right, Elliot. What's the all first right. rapid fire question? Mike, what is the first word that comes to your mind when you hear the word travel? Uh, airports. <laughs> airports. Which travel book had the biggest influence on your life? Travel book. Princess of Geography by Tim Marshall. Um, both as a conflict journalist, I like I grew up trying to be Tim Marshall, uh, and also the fact that realizing that countries are they have to decide their geopolitics based on the hand they're dealt. So if you're Switzerland, you're not going to be a great ocean-faring navy. <laughs> um, everyone has a predetermined set of cards, and that determines the country's path forward. And realize once you realize that, you realize countries do things for their own benefit, and it spirals from there. So, you know it completely changes your perspective when you go all oh, the iranians are all awful and then you realize the hand of cards they've been dealt and you go okay i get why the iranians are doing what they do right um, i i've that, had that, that that changed mine i've had that book on my like amazon list for years and 100 so, recommended like okay. it's it's um yeah it's it's the book i recommend for everyone who wants to get into geopolitics i was like right. here start here and then from there branch into other stuff okay all right. well, i'm reading it this year that's for sure all right from these options, what aspects of travel have the biggest impact on your experiences? Landscape, history, architecture, food, or people? People, 100%. It's a close history is a big one for me. I'm, I'm My lovely fiance always hates the fact that I'll get to a city and immediately want to run to some square where something important happened just to be like, oh, look, at, this, is, this is the thing where it happened. And she'll expect the four-hour detailed historical lecture on why this square is important. Um, you know, yeah, yeah, I love playing tourist guide. Uh, but people are the main thing. You know, you can buildings are buildings, but people are people, and it's the the stories that they hear there, and it's the people actually telling you why the city works the way it is, what's going on, uh, that actually stick with you. I, I remember lots of squares, but I remember far more people. Yeah, well, well said. Tell us one thing travelers should not do. Okay. This is my big bugaboo. And if I would become a dictator, this is the one thing I will dictate. You know, <laughs> I, I will do the nastiest thing. If you get to the airport baggage carousel, don't stand at the goddamn carousel looking at your bag. Take a step back and just visit forward when you need your bag. That is my biggest thing. I, I, will, for, I will forgive war crimes. I will do all <laughs> sorts of nonsense. But the like, I will, I am live and let live the most peaceful guy you can ever think. But those people who stand staring at the baggage carousel going, no, no, no. Gulag, hundred percent gulag. I do not appreciate them at all. You know, this is I have I have sat in airports trying to convince people like take a step back and take a step forward when you bag. You can see your bag. You don't need to walk crowd around the the entrance. It all comes out as well. You're only going to gain thirty seconds by doing that. Let's Stop. Say, isn't it fascinating? I don't know what it is about the airport, the process of boarding and then and then getting out of the airport that makes people not think as clearly because even boarding an airplane you have people crowd not only the gate and they'll be like Mm. you know class five Mm. and they have 20 minutes before they actually board but they're they're getting they're trying to inch closer for whatever reason i don't know but then it gets to the point where they're blocking the walkway and Mm. you you can't navigate the airport the way you you should be able to because because people are impatient for a process that is strict like that is is time stamped um yeah yeah. You're not going to, they're not going to take off without you because your bags are on the plane. Like that's yeah. the, that's the law. Right. Um, and you right. your seat is, seat. Your, your seat's already picked. Like that. this is, yeah, you're a bane of my existence. That and like everybody standing up as soon as the plane lands and just like hovering over you like this yeah. while you're trying I'm to sit there going, going the doors aren't open. Uh, like stand up when the doors are open. So you can like, as soon as you're ready to go, you can go. And this is my rant of the day. 
but that, that's uh yeah that's yep. that's yeah. where that's all th- there, there was a few things that people should not do but we'll take it <laughs> yeah. airport carousels that's the gulag time <laughs> yeah that's the forgive man. everything else but gulag for that yeah all right and last question is what is one piece of advice you'd give to yourself 10 years ago this is advice Uh, probably take better health, <laughs> drink a little less over the years. Um, also pay the extra for the, for the nicer ticket, stop, you know, taking the three leg stops, uh, to save a hundred bucks. Um, that would be the biggest advice to myself. It, that I, is a changeover in KL is not worth it. So, <laughs> and, uh, you know, Michael, I, I know you said you, you wouldn't drink as much, but I don't know if we'd have such great stories if, if you did. That is so. true. That is true. You There's know, a trade off there. I, I, I probably don't regret that regret that as much, but I think the, <laughs> the biggest regrets I would have, and I, I would tell myself is pay the extra hundred bucks to not go through, you know, that city and, you know, don't be like, oh, well, I can save a night of accommodation by flying through the middle of the night, um, knowing you're going to get to a pretty hairy country when you land. That's you know, if now I'm thinking about it, fly first thing in the morning, you can actually get some sleep and you know, that way land and you yeah. can have a nap. <laughs> that's, that's, I'm getting old man logic to myself now. Sound <laughs> advice, but that's why, that's why the, the, it's called wisdom. It's called wisdom, yes, Michael. Uh, I'm going to, I'm going to take us on a quick tangent before we wrap okay. up. There's a okay. guy who spent, so this was in January, January 1, mm. 2019, yep. uh, three years ago now, who spent 10 years drinking almost every single day to try to find the perfect hangover cure and, and what he was did. it he found it uh i don't remember it was some kind of like concoction yes. of vitamins and other things no it was death. but he it's died. really interesting he traveled a bunch doing it um i think some not great things happened to him because he was mm-hmm. drunk a lot of those 10 years what's mm-hmm. his name you got to get him on the podcast i know i know it's uh <laughs> what's his i don't know i have to find With my it. alter ego <laughs> we'll figure it out uh, wow uh, we end up emailing michael <laughs> shaughnessy bishop stall why does that name yeah. ring a bell um no, yeah. Uh, you drank with him in Turkmenistan. <laughs> you might. Possibly. He's a journalist. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. That, that, you know, the fact he's an alcoholic journalist actually <laughs> ticks a lot of the boxes that it's possible. Yeah. <laughs> um, mine was always if if uh, watermelon in the morning is really good, but just a hunt, like six cups of water before you go to bed. Like, you know, you don't want to take it, but just force yourself. Like it's. I'm it's, a. Yeah, I'm a chug of Gatorade right before bed with like ibuprofen. Yeah, no, I don't. I don't do the ibuprofen. I just do six cups of water, and yeah, you know, yeah. almost cry into the sink as I get the sixth one down. <laughs> yeah, yeah. They, so it, I, I was, I was pretty close. He said it's a con- very specific concoction of vitamins and supplements. That you that take name, don't mix your drinks. Stick, stick to vodka, kids. That's 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 my advice. All right, there it is. <laughs> Keep drinking. Yeah. <laughs> Michael, thank you for coming on the podcast. This will not be the last time. I feel confident in saying that. Uh, we always have it to come it. on. It's always a pleasure. And yeah, let us know if you're in the U.S. and we will let you know when we're in your would neck love to, Would love to catch up for a drink. The borders are about to open, so I'm getting back on the road. I'm very excited. So, as soon as I'm in the U.S., I'll uh, definitely meet up with both you, and you can show me how Philly parties. Absolutely. Yes, yeah. All right, man. Sounds All good. Right. Thank you so much for having me on, and I'll talk to you guys soon. That again was a fascinating discussion. His the stuff he studies, I think, is really interesting. And I think there's there's always way more behind things than we ever could realize. Right. I think what's really like relating to this to travel, what makes this interesting is that he is actively engaged in the events that are shaping the industry that we're going to look at in the future. Right. So he's I mean, these are historical moments. They're always significant. Conflicts are significant parts of a country's history of shaping the culture and the and, and then everything that else that, that that trickles you know beyond that and so he's looking at this stuff in real time deep diving into it understanding the intricacies of these conflicts and these cultural events and then we sort of learn about a country after the fact because we focus on tourism so we focus on countries that aren't in conflict that have good tourism infrastructure that have deep history and have the people traveling to them so it's just interesting because he's seeing it at an earlier stage, seeing these countries or these locations or these cities or these people and cultures at earlier stages than we actually get into them. Yeah. 
Yeah, it's, it's kind of interesting. Um, mm-hmm. And I know last week we had Matt Mitzel on discussing George mm-hmm. Armenia and Azerbaijan, and you can get a firsthand experience of that. So that's episode 179. Awesome. Yeah, that was a great conversation. Yeah. Another another close friend of the podcast. Yeah. Yeah. So thank you for listening. Uh, if you want to help support the podcast, you can check us out on Patreon for as little as a dollar a month. You can contribute. Uh, you can check out Manscaped. You can check out our Redbubble and T Public for TTB merchandise. You can check out our uh, How to Become a Travel Agent video tutorial series. Uh, if you want to support us non-financially, you can do so just by leaving us a review anywhere, uh, interacting with us on social media and following us on social media. That includes Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, all those. Uh, we really appreciate your listenership and your support. Stay safe. Stay safe. Stay healthy. And tune in next week.